So James chapter 5 is not an attack against farmers. You know that? Farmers are a lovely group of people and sadly are under attack. So I just want to get that off my chest to start with. But what you will see here, even the heading in my Bible talks about this as a warning to the rich. And so the men that James is addressing here were rich. They were wealthy. And as we're going to see, they were using their wealth for selfish purposes, and they were persecuting the poor in the process. By the way, the other thing I need to get off my chest is is that uh, James did not say that it was a sin to be rich. Not a sin to be rich. Otherwise, wouldn't God be sinning? Isn't God rich? Anyway... Uh, that's an interesting thought. But uh, James was concerned here about the selfishness of these people who were rich. And notice he actually advised them. It's Well, it's stronger than advised. It's an imperative in the Greek. He tells them to weep and howl. Weep and howl. And so that's why I'm asking you today, are you weeping and howling? Are you? And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, taken together, the idea of weeping and howling here, what what you need to envision is something of an an intense outburst of despair, of violence. It's something of uncontrollable grief. And so James is commanding them to have this, this outburst of despair, violent, uncontrollable grief. And you say, well, that's kind of weird. Why would... Why would James compare or, or uh, command these people to weep and howl? Well, he actually gave three reasons. James is so logical. Uh, hey, so he gives three reasons. So let's, let's read uh, James 5, starting here in verse 1. Come now. By the way, uh, boy, that is, that is a really rich, bold statement. Come now. You could say that with, like, with an exclamation point. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. Why? For your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. That's the warning to the rich. You say, well, what does that have to do with me? (laughs) I'm not rich. (laughs) Probably none of us in this room would consider ourselves to be rich. And if if you're not in that category, there's still a lot for you to learn. So so please do listen up here. Uh, But what's the main idea? The main idea, I think, is this. Got it on the screen there for you, that Christians should not wreak vengeance on their oppressors. Because God has promised 
to take care of them and that issue. And so James is, is teaching us what it means to be a mature Christian. What does it look like? What, what are you to think like? How are you to act and speak as a mature Christian? And, and, and in this particular chapter, he's going to talk a lot about humility and patience, and, and particularly as you're going through trials. Uh, and if the oppressor is a part of your trial, how are you to respond? Well, a mature Christian responds to their oppressor with humility and patience. And so James gives us three reasons why someone needs to weep and howl. The first reason to weep and howl is because of the way they got their wealth. It's, it's how they got their wealth. And by the way, the Bible does not discourage the acquiring of wealth. Right? Communism is not a good worldview. Marxism is a really bad idea. God does not teach that. God does not promote that. And so the Bible does condemn things. And what it does, though, condemn in the acquiring of wealth is how do you do that? If you're doing it by illegal means or if you do it for illegal purposes, God condemns that. And so James actually gave two illustrations here of how the rich were acquiring their wealth. And, of course, these are the wrong ways of doing it. And the first way God says in verse 4 is that the rich were holding back wages. They were holding back wages. So these were the employers, if you will, of of that world. And so notice what verse 4 says. Uh, Verse 4 says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. Let me explain that. See, the laborers, uh, often during the time of the first century church, people uh, didn't really have contracts. Right? There, were, there was no unions that I was aware of, right? uh, that sort of thing. And so the laborers were hired and they were paid by the day. And, and, so they, and they were doing all this without legal contracts with their employers. And so in in God's law there in the Old Testament, God actually gave definite instructions to to the Jews and to Israel concerning uh, a laboring man. And God wanted that laboring man to be protected from oppressive employers. God cares about this. So let me just share a few verses with you here on the screen. So in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 14, God says this, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it so that he may not cry against you to the Lord and it becomes sin in you. By the way, we we could apply this to aliens. It would be, for example, people like coming coming into New Zealand from outside New Zealand. They they're, they're uh, citizens of other countries, and they may maybe they're coming in to pick fruit or you know those sort of things. And uh, sometimes they get abused because they're not citizens of our country. And so 
this, this sort of thing was happening at this time. So God cared about even people who were not Israelis. And, and in Leviticus 19, God also says that you shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. So the idea is, right, that, that, that person who, who comes and does the day's work needs to be paid at the end of the day. Don't withhold the wages. That often those people were so poor they needed the wages of that day so they could eat some food. They needed to pay for some food to eat. Well, the prophets also talked about this. For example, here in uh, Jeremiah 22, verse 13, it says, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. So, God does care about social justice, okay? But, uh, just let me just make step something that's happening in our world today that's, uh, it's very sad what's happening in our world, where there are certain movements that, uh, that have made social justice the ultimate thing. Okay? And so whenever you turn something into an ultimate thing that's not God, that's called idolatry. And so God is for social justice. He's, not, he's against injustice, as it says here. Just beware of movements that turn it into the ultimate thing. And that's, uh, that's, that's what's happening with certain worldviews. And, and these worldviews, have, have gra- these movements have grasped onto that worldview. So just beware of that. Uh, we need to care about injustice. Justice should happen. God is a just God. But uh, what what these rich men were doing here is they had hired the laborers, and then they promised to pay them a specific amount. And so the men had completed their work, but the employer didn't pay his employees. And if you were one of those employees, you would be crying foul, wouldn't you? You say, "Hey, that's not fair." And by the way, it's interesting, in the the Greek text of your Bible here, uh, those words kept back, the the particular tense of of those Greek words there shows us in the original Greek that the laborers uh, would never get paid their salaries. They were never going to get paid what, what they deserved. They wouldn't get their salaries or their wages. So that's part of the problem here of, of what was what was their how were they accumulating their wealth? Well, it was, it was by fraud, wasn't it? Number two, the rich were controlling the courts, as verse six tells us. Uh, notice it says in verse six, you have you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This was a common thing often the case that those who have the wealth also have that political power. Uh, they would control the courts, and so they were able to get what they want. You ever heard that, uh, that phrase, um, some people ask, what is the golden rule? You know what the golden rule is? It's not biblical, by the way. The golden rule is whoever has the gold makes the rules. Right? That's not, that's not what Jesus said, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> But but that, that is often the case, isn't it? 
Uh, if you have the gold or the the wealth, if you're if you're the rich person, you you can just you just squash everybody who doesn't. And it's interesting. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God shows how He cares about justice and equality. And, and so, when God established Israel in the land of Israel, He gave the people a system of courts. You can read about that in Deuteronomy. He even warned the judges, do not be greedy. And they were not to be partial. In Leviticus it says, don't be partial. It doesn't matter if they're rich or poor, they're to be treated equally. And So no judge was to tolerate perjury. And God even said that bribery was to be condemned. Now, how often do we see in countries of the world where, you know, you know just slide some money, kind of, uh, you know, you know, you do the money handshake or you slide the money under the table so you, you, you get your way, right? And so the courts in James' day were apparently easy to control if, if you had enough money. <laughs> the poor workers, of course, couldn't afford the expensive lawsuits. They, they didn't have the money to do that, so they were, they were beaten down by those who were rich. And the workers had the just cause, but they were not given justice because of that. And so instead they would be abused and they were ruined. And the poor man did not resist, as it says there at the end of, of uh, verse 6. Uh, they did not resist the rich man because they didn't have the wealth to do so. Uh, they, they had, uh, if you think of money as a weapon, they didn't have those weapons to fight with. and So they weren't able to resist. All they could do was call on God for justice. So so that's the first reason why they needed to weep and howl. But there's a second reason. And it's because of the way the rich used their wealth. Not just how they became wealthy, but then after they became wealthy, how were they using their resources? I mean, it's bad enough to gain wealth in a sinful way. But they were also using that wealth in sinful ways, which just made the the sin even greater. And so notice what the Bible says here. The, the way that the rich were using their wealth, we see in verse 3, they stored up their wealth. They were storing up their wealth, verse 3 says. Notice the three main ways during this time you, you could be wealthy was notice your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. By the way, God is not against savings, okay? So if, if you actually have some savings in your bank account or, you know, hidden in, under your floor or wherever you, your mattress, wherever you put it, uh, God is not against that. Jesus is not against savings. In fact, Jesus himself said, in the book of Matthew, he says, Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have, I would have received my money back with interest. So notice what Jesus says there. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. Jesus is not against doing that. It is wrong to store up wealth when you owe money to your employees. They've done the day's work, and if they don't get paid, that's obviously sinful. 
but these rich men were hoarding their grain from the harvest. They're hoarding their gold. They were hoarding their garments. They thought that they were rich because they had all of those possessions. Jesus said, don't lay up treasure, right? No, that's not what Jesus said, right? <laughs> right? Some people think, Jesus said, don't lay up treasure. No, that's not what Jesus said. He's just concerned about where you lay up your treasure. Where do you lay up your treasure? Are you, are you laying it in a, in a place where the, the moths eat your garments and uh, you know the gold corrodes and people steal the other stuff? Is, is that where you're laying up your treasure? Read Matthew chapter 6. Jesus was concerned about that. So instead of laying up treasures in heaven by using their wealth for God's glory, these rich people were selfishly guarding it for their own security and pleasure. They didn't want to share it. And by the way, it was about ten years after James wrote these words. Did you know the Romans came in and sacked Jerusalem and utterly destroyed the place and took the treasures with them. All that wealth that had been accumulated by these rich people was taken. So what did Jesus mean then when Jesus said, lay up treasures in heaven? What does he mean by that? To lay up treasures in heaven, that means you're using all that you have been given by God and you recognize you're only a steward. You're only a manager of that. It doesn't actually belong to you. And so you're using it as a steward. You and I may possess many things, but we do not own those things. The Bible is pretty clear that God's the owner of everything. Read Psalm 24, 1. So you are a steward. So what we possess and we use are just merely things apart from the will of God. But the good news is when you actually yield to God's will and then you use what He gives to you to serve Him, then things actually become treasures and and you're actually investing in eternity. My friends, that's what Jesus meant by laying up treasure in heaven. So what you do on earth does matter. (laughs) It is actually being recorded in a book in heaven, and God is the one keeping that book, and He pays wonderful interest. Let me illustrate what James is trying to say here. This is an interesting story I came across about a lady named Bertha Adams. You ever heard of Bertha Adams? Probably not. Uh, But when Bertha Adams was 71 years old, she died alone in the state of Florida in the year 1976. By the way, I I did a Google search on Bertha Adams, and there was all kinds of Bertha Adams out there, so it gets confusing. But the coroner's report said this, the cause of death was malnutrition. And after wasting away to 50 pounds or 23 kilos, imagine only weighing 23 kilos, uh, of course, uh, you know, the coroner's like, Oh, she wasn't able to stay alive. And when the state authorities made their preliminary investigation of her place, they found a huge mess. One inspector declared he had never seen a dwelling in greater disarray. 
The pitiable woman had begged food from neighbors, got her clothes from the Salvation Army or the op shop, and from all appearances, she was a penniless recluse, poor, a pitiful and forgotten widow, but reality was different. (laughs) That was not the case. In fact, among the mess of her disorganized belongings, they found two keys which led those officials to a safe deposit box at two different banks, and the discovery was unbelievable. The first safety deposit box contained over 700 stock certificates, plus hundreds of other valuable bonds and solid financial securities, not to mention a stack of cash that amounted to $200,000. Remember, this is 1976. The second safety deposit box had $600,000 in it. And adding the net worth of both both boxes, the woman was a millionaire. She was literally a millionaire. So Bertha Adams' hoarding is, is something that's tragic, and her death was a grim testimony to the small focus of her life. There's lessons to be learned from this. Her great wealth didn't do her any good, did it? And its proper use could have been uh, actually something helpful to her, could have helped her help, and uh, certainly could have been help to others. But it wasn't any good for her nor anyone else. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. And what a tragedy it is to see people who are heaping up treasures for the last days, who are not laying up treasures in heaven, and then it does them no good and no one else any good. And so, friends, the Bible does not discourage saving, okay? In fact, I would encourage you, and, and God encourage you, at least have some money set aside for some emergencies, <laughs> right? So, you know, if your refrigerator stops working, so you can get a new refrigerator, or, you know, the uh, transmission blows up on your car, you can get another car, you know, these sort of things, right? Uh, that, that, that would be wise for you to do that. And, and neither is God against investing, But what God is condemning here is hoarding. There's a vast difference. (laughs) Vast difference. So moving on to number two, we see here they kept others from benefiting from the wealth. So they're hoarding. They got this huge amount of wealth, and it's doing no one else any good. They kept it from other people. Remember, they got it by fraud, and so these rich men were robbing the poor, The rich men were not using their own wealth, but they would uh, not pay their laborers and permit them to use that wealth. I know some of you might be thinking of some really wealthy people in our world today. Often the most wealthy people in our world are doing this very thing, aren't they? Some of them are billionaires. They're beyond the millionaire mark. They're billionaires. I mean, how do you spend that much? They can't. But yet some of their employees are on the least amount of money they can give them, right? Sad. So they're keeping others from benefiting from that wealth. And God's judging this very attitude and this very action. But we also see here in verse 5 that the rich lived in luxury. They were living in luxury. (laughs) High in the hog, so to speak, right? Uh, Notice verse 5 says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. 
Friends, luxury is a waste. God says waste is a sin. All of us are grateful for the good things of life, at least we should be. We would certainly not want to return to the primitive conditions of thousands of years ago. I hope you're thankful for wonderful things like running water, electricity. Uh, I'm thankful for having a toilet in my house. Any of you ever used toilets that aren't in your house? Boy, I am. I mean, one time in the Solomon Islands, I was there. There, there was no toilet. You had to go. You know, there was a. I don't know. It's hard to describe, but I got attacked by red ants when I was using it. And uh, <clears throat> the red ants uh, have really big bites, and and, I, and it just made me want to go home and praise God for the wonderful things we have here. Those are just a few things. And so we should be thankful for those things. I'm not suggesting you, you, you know, you go back to primitive stuff. Neither is God. But we recognize the fact there, there, there is, of course, a point of diminishing returns. You remember what, well, hopefully you remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. That's in Luke 12. So there's a great difference between enjoying what God has given to you and then living extravagantly on what we have withheld from other people. And so even if what we have has been earned lawfully, and it's within the will of God, you have to be careful you're not wasting that on just selfish living. Uh, there's a lot of needs that, uh, in your family and other people's lives that need to be met. This, this is God's concern here. But one of the problems with luxury is that it has a way of ruining people's character. It's a form of self-indulgence, as James calls it here, And so if you match character with the wealth, then you can produce much good. But if you match self-indulgence with that wealth, the result becomes sin. Be careful of your motive. Be careful what what is the foundation behind that there. So the rich lived in luxury, and God's calling them out on that. But there's a third reason to weep and howl here. It's this, friends, what the riches will do. What are the riches going to do? If, if you're rich, God's warning you here. God's warning. I mean, the rich thought they had it made because of their wealth. But God thought otherwise, because notice what he says in verse 1. He says, howl. Weep and howl. Why? For, your, for the miseries that are coming upon you. Ooh. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> you say, well, um, why, why, why do they need to weep and howl? What, what, what miseries? Why, why, why is this the case? Well, James actually describes the consequences of misused riches. Remember, it's not a sin to be rich, but it is if you misuse those resources that God gives to you. And, and the first one that God says here is that the riches will vanish. Riches will vanish. That's interesting. Because notice what, what, what happens to the harvest. If you're just hoarding up the harvest, God says, well, it's going to rot. What good is it then? 
who, who wants to eat just rotten grain? Uh, the, the gold's going to corrode and the garments are going to be eaten by the moths and nothing material in this world will last forever. Nothing material in this world will last forever. So it's a great mistake to think that you can actually be secure. You can't be secure in your wealth. In fact, the Apostle Paul said this. Listen to what he says. He says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. That's in 1 Timothy. And then you add to that fact that uh, the Bible says life is brief. <laughs> what did James say? Your life is like a vapor. It's short, it's temporary, it's quick. And you can't take your wealth with you. And you can see how foolish it is to live for the things of this world. Somebody jokingly said you don't usually see trailers being pulled behind the hearse as they're off to the, to the cemetery. Not usually. I used to say always until I, I Google imaged that and I actually found one. So there are people who do that sort of thing. The pharaohs tried that. It didn't work for them. The tomb robbers came in and stole their stuff. It doesn't work. And so God said to the rich man in, in Luke, you fool, this night your soul shall be required of you, then who shall those things be which you have provided? Right? You die and you leave it behind. Who gets it then? Not you. Does you no good. So God goes on to say, that, that number two here, that the misused riches erode your character. It even, it even attacks your own character. Did you see that? Because after it talks about the gold and the silver corroding and the corrosion, their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Wow. By the way, that's a present judgment. That's not a future judgment. That's what happens to rich people here while they're on earth. The poison of wealth has infected them, and they're being eaten alive by it. By the way, I also have to say that some people's favorite verse in the Bible is, money is a root to all kinds of evil. Did you know that's not in the Bible? That's not what the Bible says? So make sure you read it properly. Money is not the root to all evil. What is? It's the love of the money. Good, I'm glad you know this verse in the Bible. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. So be careful. Money is not sinful. Money is a neutral thing. It's a neutral thing. Now, there's plenty of rich people in the Bible whom God blessed. Right? We, we could name, hopefully you can name some. Like in the New Testament, people like Lydia. In the Old Testament, you had people like Abraham and Job, just to name a few. They were rich. Uh, Abraham, I mean, he maintained his faith and his character, even though God blessed him and, and gave him great riches. But then you have his nephew, on the other hand, who was also rich. And when Lot became rich, the Bible says it ruined his character, and it ultimately ruined his family. He lost his entire family in the process. What a tragedy. It's good to have riches in your hand, 
but when those things corrupt your heart, then it's a tragedy. Did you notice? Well, maybe you haven't. It's interesting in Psalm 62, it talks about this very thing. It says that if riches increase, set not your heart upon them. In other words, if you become rich, if you become wealthy, it's okay if it's in your hand, but when that seeps into your heart and corrupts your heart, oh, that's a tragedy. Proverbs also tells us a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. There are things far more important than riches and wealth. So be careful, friends. Those misused riches erode character. And the last thing that God points out to here is that judgment is a certainty. It is a certainty. God says so. Look what he says in verse 3. The last thing in verse 3 says, You have laid up treasure in the last days. And then in verse 5, he says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Wow. So James not only saw a present judgment, that, that their very character would be eroded while they're here on earth, but there's something coming in the future their wealth decaying, their character eroding was something of a present judgment, but there was also a future judgment that would take place before God. Jesus Christ, my friends, the Bible says He's going to be the judge. His judgment's going to be righteous because He's the righteous judge. He knows all and He always makes the right judgments. But there's going to be some witnesses, not that Jesus needs witnesses, But James says there's going to be witnesses against these people. And God's going to call on them on the day of judgment. In verse 3, the first witness is that the rich men's wealth are actually going to witness against them. Ouch. They probably don't expect that. But verse 3, notice it talks about your gold and your silver have corroded. The corrosion is going to be evidence against you. Wow. So their rotten grain, the corroded gold and their silver... Their moth-eaten garments are all going to bear witness against their selfishness and their self-indulgence. And there's a bit of irony here, isn't there? The rich men have saved their wealth, supposedly to help them, but it actually is going to witness against them. Their hoarded riches are actually going to be there testifying against them. Don't you love the irony? Uh, But there's a second witness showing the certainty of judgment, that the wages they held back are going to witness against them, even in court, as verse 4 says. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Yeah, so in this case, money does really talk. It doesn't have lips. Right? Not literally. You're not going to see lips on the money in a tongue and saying stuff. If you do, then please come see me. But in this case, figuratively, the money is talking and these stolen salaries here are crying out to God for justice and judgment. So it's going to speak in that way. And number three, the workers will testify against the rich people. The workers themselves, of course, are going to testify. Because notice as verse 4 goes on, it says that the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
there will be no opportunities then for the rich to, uh, you know, pass some money under the table, give a, you know, the, the, the money handshake, right? Won't be happening on the day of judgment. <laughs> you know, you, you can't pay Jesus enough to bribe him. Won't happen. So God hears the cries of his oppressed people, and he says that he's going to judge righteously. Friends, this judgment's a serious thing. Uh, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20 that lost people are going to stand before Jesus Christ there at the great white throne judgment. That's not for believers, by the way. When you read that, don't if you're a believer in Christ, don't insert yourself in that judgment. The Bible says the judgment seat of Christ is for you, for all Christians. And so if you're saved today, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's a time of reward, not a time of condemnation. Read Romans 14. And there's one last point that God makes here is that they lost precious opportunities. They lost precious opportunities, as verse 3 says. So you notice your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Friends, think about this here. Think of the good that could have been accomplished with all of that hoarded wealth. There are poor people in that congregation whom James apparently knew, or at least heard about, who could have been helped by the hoarded wealth. And there were workers who deserved their wages. And it's sad to say that in just a few years from when James said this, that the Jewish nation was defeated and scattered and Jerusalem was destroyed. The wealth did no good. It is good, though, to have the things that money can buy, provided you also have the things that money can't buy. Have you ever thought about that money can't do everything? There's things that money can't buy. For example, what good is it if you have a million-dollar house and there's no love in that house? Money can't buy love. Uh, think about it, friends. What, what, what good is it if you have a $5,000 diamond ring and there is no love? So James did not condemn the riches. He's not condemning rich people for being rich. Neither should we. But he is condemning the wrong use of riches and, and these rich people who were using their wealth actually as a weapon and destroying people in the process. Let me illustrate um, with a story as we kind of wrap this up. It's interesting. Way back in 1923, there was an elite group of businessmen, and they met in a very luxurious hotel in Chicago, and in the place was called Edgewater Beach Hotel. The roster included some of the most influential, famous, and wealthy moguls of the early 20th century. Uh, most of them you've probably never heard of. That's okay. Uh, be interesting to how many of you heard of these people? Five names. Uh, by the way, there were more, but some of the more Wealthy ones were Charles Schwab, the president of the Bethlehem Steel Corporation. There was Richard Whitney, president of the New York Stock Exchange. 
Albert Fall, who was Secretary of the Interior under the President of the United States. Jesse Livermore was a Wall Street tycoon. And there was Ivar Kruger, who was head of a global monopoly of some manufacturers. And so these were kind of the heavy hitters of that day, and they, and they came together to meet. They were controlling much of the wealth there, at least in the United States. In fact, as I was reading about this, it said that, that uh, they controlled uh, more wealth than the total assets of the United States Treasury at that particular time. And so surely these men would become models of an entrepreneurial spirit, uh, maybe become stellar examples of financial success, right? But if you just, back in the days when you could fast forward the old videos, just picture yourself, well, let's just fast forward this video and see what happens with their life. 25 years down the road, you look back over the course of their lives, Here's what happened to these men, at least the five I've mentioned. Charles Schwab died. He was no longer wealthy. In fact, he was in debt by $300 million. He died in 1939. Whitney actually served time at Sing Sing Prison for embezzlement. And the Mr. Fall actually served time for misconduct in office, leaving behind a ruined reputation. Remember what Proverbs said? A good name is rather be chosen than great riches. Livermore committed suicide in 1940 and described himself as a failure. And Kruger shot himself in 1932 after his global monopoly collapsed. What lessons can we learn from that? Well, all, all these men, by the way, died in a very depressing, pitiable condition. Their wealth, their power, their prestige did nothing to, to soothe their, their anxiety. They, they suffered horrible guilt in life. And the reality is that great intelligence and, and their, their hard work, yes, it, it can make you wealthy. But it takes a God-given wisdom. It takes supernatural humility to be able to manage all of those resources and the influence that God gave, gave to them. I, I don't know if they were saved or not. I don't know. But one of the lessons we can learn from that is certainly this, friends. We need God's wisdom. We need that supernatural humility lest we come to a point where we need to be commanded to weep and howl for the miseries that are going to come upon us. There's good warning for every one of us here. So may God give you wisdom and humility. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, warning. May we take it to heart, even though probably none of us consider ourselves to be wealthy or living in the lap of luxury, like uh, like these people here were. Nevertheless, we are so blessed. So blessed. We, we thank you for all the wonderful resources you've given to us. May we be thankful. May we have hearts of gratitude for your blessings, whatever it is you've given to us. And may we be content with what you have given to us. Protect us from hearts of greed. 
hearts that, that might be self-indulgent. Uh, sometimes even poor people can, can have the wrong hearts and the wrong motivation and can have this kind of a spirit. So uh, forgive us if that is the case. We're thankful that you're a God we can run to to find forgiveness for our sin because you are faithful and just. We know you're going to forgive us. So enable us. Uh, we, We ask that you would give us this kind of wisdom, give us a supernatural humility that that we would be able to be wise stewards and be able to manage all of what you give to us in a way that's pleasing to you and helpful to people around us. In Jesus' name we pray.